Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Monday, May 10th. John, what do you want to talk about today? So I guess we'll start with Liz Cheney. And now that Kevin McCarthy has endorsed Representative Elise Stefanik of New York, you know, I think we have to dive back into that conversation. I also want to discuss the UK election results, Scotland's in particular. How about you? All right. I would like to talk about the exchange-traded fund industry, which just hit a big milestone as ETFs have reportedly surpassed traditional passive index funds in terms of global assets under management. This is a good opportunity for us to take a step back and look at the implications of the recent year's boom in ETFs specifically and passive investing generally. After that, we'll hear an interview with my old friend Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. That's going to be exciting. Okay, let's start with our science and tech headlines. First, John, Elon Musk hosted Saturday Night Live on Saturday night. But more importantly, I'd argue this happened the next day. All right. Falcon 9 has successfully lifted off from Pad 40 at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, carrying yet again another stack of 60 Starlink satellites to orbit. Those Starlink satellites are part of an ongoing test for a SpaceX program that aims to beam Internet connections down from low orbit. Already, about a quarter of orbiting satellites belong to Starlink, and it has plans to launch thousands more via its own rockets. There's a big market for web connectivity that can reach across the planet. According to the United Nations, roughly half of the global population is offline. John, you're very much online, but I seem to recall that you wouldn't mind getting your internet from Starlink satellites yourself, right? In a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Based on speed, um, you know, if it were faster than the internet service I have in uh, Connecticut, uh, I think I'd sign up in a heartbeat. The only question would be, would would it be interrupted by bad weather? I don't know the answer to that. But uh, for the half half of humanity that is without, uh, you know, internet connectivity, uh, Mr. Mr. Musk's uh, initiative is uh, more than welcome, I would think. Yeah, not a dumb idea. Mm -hmm. Next, new research suggests that the COVID-19 virus's genes can integrate with human DNA. It's not the first time this idea has floated around the scientific community, and this latest paper, published in the peer-reviewed Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, has already attracted criticism. The theory that human cells may on rare occasions copy viral RNA into human chromosomes could explain why people sometimes test positive for COVID-19 months after their infection. One former skeptic at Cornell, who now calls the hypothesis plausible, tells the journal Science that any implications for human health are at this point pure speculation. Uh, True. (laughs) But interesting, right? Um, So one will follow. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to the news items. On Sunday, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy told Maria Bartiromo of Fox News that he will endorse New York Representative Elise Stefanik to replace Liz Cheney as the Republican conference chair. This was not a surprise. Last week, Axios published audio from an off-air hot mic moment where McCarthy told Steve Ducey of Fox News, I've lost confidence. Someone just has to bring a motion, but I assume that will probably take place. So, John, let's take a step back, refresh, and review why Kevin McCarthy is so eager to get rid of Liz Cheney right now. The biggest problem the Republicans have nationally is women. (laughs) Trump lost women 57-42 in the 2020 election. 
15 percentage points. Mm -hmm. So you would think that the one thing you wouldn't want to do is take the most prominent Republican woman in politics and throw her overboard. Mm -hmm. But at Trump's insistence, that's exactly what Kevin McCarthy has done. And he, to try and cover his tracks a little bit, has endorsed Elise Stefanik to replace Liz Cheney, but everybody got, got the message. So, you know, you look at this and you think, what are they thinking? Mm -hmm. Sending a message to women that says, you know, if you're critical of Donald Trump, then you're out. But apropos of being critical of Donald Trump, Elise Stefanik was one of 10 Republican House members who voted to impeach Donald Trump, was she not? Yes, she was. And she voted with Trump just 77.7% of the time, according to the Washington Post, compared to Liz Cheney, who voted with Trump 92.9% of the time. She voted against his 2017 tax reform bill. She voted against making the tax cuts permanent. So why is Liz Cheney threatening to Trump, but Elise Stefanik is not? Because Liz Cheney has been openly critical of Trump in the mm -hmm. wake of the, quote, stolen, end quote, presidential election. Yeah. And Trump has decided to exhibit his total control of the party by endorsing someone who opposed him on any number of legislative initiatives. Mm -hmm. There is some danger that she won't, for McCarthy, it's possible that she won't get the votes mm -hmm. in the Republican caucus. It's not likely, but it's possible. Yeah. And she's not particularly well-liked. So, John, is this really about Kevin McCarthy being held hostage by Trump and maybe fearing that his own loyalties are going to be called into question if he doesn't make some move, however ill-advised it may seem, <laughs> to the strategic thinkers among us? Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, he's scared to death of Trump. Um, they all are. You know, and the big fear they yeah, all have too bad. is that Trump will find somebody to run against them in a primary. The one mm -hmm. thing politicians are terrified of is a primary because it eats up resources and it makes it more likely that you'll be defeated in the general election. Mm -hmm. So the, what Trump's threat is, if you don't do what I say, I'll find somebody to run against you in a primary and that will make your life a living misery. And they all say, you know what? You're right. OK, I'm with you. The plot thickens. The plot thickens, exactly. <laughs> All right, moving on. For the first time ever, exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, have probably surpassed index-tracking mutual funds. It will take a while for the official data to come in, but according to a piece in the Financial Times today, the consultancy ETFGI has estimated that there are approximately $8.3 trillion invested in ETFs globally, putting them slightly ahead of traditional passively managed mutual funds. Okay, let's start at the beginning. What's the difference between an ETF okay. and an index fund? All right. An exchange-traded fund is a basket of stocks that trade with all-day liquidity just like a stock. So rather than trading a single stock, you're trading a basket of stocks, but you can trade in and out all day long. An index fund is a fund that is like a miniaturized version of a regular index where you can invest in or redeem funds just once a day at the end of the trading day. So it's a way of gaining access to an index, but with less liquidity than what you would have with an ETF. Mm -hmm. What they both have in common is that they are passive investments and that you're not paying a money manager to do a bottom-up analysis or a top-down analysis and choose stocks for you and that you're not doing sort of analysis yourself. You trade either an index or a basket, like a, a sector basket, let's say, of stocks, and that's how you, you trade the market that way. Yeah. 
Do you have ETFs, John? I do. As do I. So see, look, here we are. We both hold ETFs. Yes. There are a few explanations for this trend. I mean, again, we mentioned there's greater liquidity. I mean, you can trade in and out of ETFs all day long as opposed to indexes, which you can't. There are lower fees compared to an actively managed fund. There are some tax advantages uh, associated with ETFs compared to mutual funds. And there are simply more of them. As of, I think, earlier this year, there are... 6,725 available to trade ETFs in the market universe compared to 3,196 index funds. So you have, you also have a lot of flexibility. It's not just a, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm, I sound like I'm like being paid by the ETF country. Sounds that way. Like, doesn't it? But <laughs> Which particular? I'm not. Okay. Let me say, but I mean, honestly, I think this moment has, is not coming as a surprise to market watchers that this is a, the moment where ETFs are, you know, have surpassed mutual funds in in the space. And we should say that there are criticisms of this. And, you know, it's not like this is just a, you know, like a rah-rah moment. I mean, one of the concerns about the prevalence of ETFs and the rise of ETFs in recent years is that it leads to people over-trading. That if you tell people they can trade in and out of an ETF all day long, that's exactly what they're going to do. And the more people trade, you know, it's I guess it's great if you're getting commission-free trading, but it's not always the I mean, you get low commissions maybe. The more you trade, the more you pay in trade commission fees, which mm-hmm. eats into returns. So that's a knock against, you know, ETFs. And as well as as the observation that when people like retail traders especially are trading in and out of stocks, as we've seen with meme stocks in recent months, it can exacerbate volatile market conditions. So exactly at the moment where you want people to kind of cool it, maybe and see like for wait for, you know, calmer heads to prevail, people are going to be doing the opposite. So, I mean, it's an interesting trend story, but people love ETFs. Listed companies do not love being included in an ETF basket because it means that they're sort of like dragged along with the sector. Like no matter what they do, they're going to get dragged along with the ETF. So, yeah. Does the trend continue, do you think? I mean, if you ask me, I think so. Yeah. I'd say the overarching message of the past, I don't know, X number of years in markets is that people love control. People love the illusion of control. (laughs) Let's put it that way. We're going to have you employed as the ETF spokeswoman. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. They can just like reach out to my people and <laughs> make <a> daily ETFs. <laughs> get, get Rebecca Dars for ETFs. Line. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Buying low, selling high. All right. Let's move across the pond for our last item. Citizens went to the polls in the UK and cast votes in local council elections, the London mayoral election, as well as for seats in the London Assembly and for the Scottish and Welsh Parliament. The Scottish elections were probably the most consequential, and they led to 64 seats for the Scottish National Party. That's one seat short of a majority, but it's more than enough to ensure that Nicola Sturgeon will remain in office as first minister. John, what does the SNP's somewhat muddled victory mean for the Scottish independence movement? You know, one vote away, right? I mean, one seat away from an outright majority. If they caucus with the Greens, which they will, Mm -hmm. then they have more than enough to pass uh, legislation calling for a referendum for Scottish independence. Mm -hmm. But I think the expectations were set that the Scottish National Party would win an outright majority and therefore the referendum would be front and center right away. And Mm -hmm. I think the result from last Thursday's vote means that it's not going to happen right away, that there's going to be a process and the Scottish National Party will engage with Prime Minister Johnson's government 
and they'll go back and forth. Johnson has said under no circumstances will he allow it. He doesn't want uh-huh. to be the prime minister who you know resided over the breakup of the United Kingdom. So he's been adamant that it's a non-starter. Mm-hmm. He says in the midst of COVID that it's irresponsible and reckless to go forward with it. Ms. Sturgeon, recognizing the COVID issue, has said, no, no, we're not going to do it until we're confident that the COVID situation is well in hand. So she's mm-hmm. met that part of the Johnson argument. So you mentioned that Johnson has vowed he will oppose an official Scotland referendum. Mm -hmm. But the louder he is about it and the more he resists it, does that generate ever more support for Scottish independence? It's like the more this man runs his mouth, it's like the more, (laughs) the better it looks to leave. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's also generational, right? Mm -hmm. So you have younger voters uh, more willing to to imagine Scottish independence, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Pre-Brexit, I think it was in 2004, 14, 14. Mm-hmm. independence lost on a ballot by 10 points. Yeah. Today, the polls show it even. This gives the Scottish National Party time to campaign in concert with the Greens to build a case for why independence would be a good idea. Does Johnson saying, you know, no way, Jose, is that going to push the 45 up to 50? Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know. We don't know. It's interesting. Post-Brexit, Ireland is actually the only official English-speaking member of the EU. Right, right. So you don't think, like, Scotland maybe sees a window of opportunity, or maybe it would become like another Nordic country. Maybe it would just join the Scandinavians. It could. It could. So we're going to take a moment to hear from our sponsors, but we're back from the break. John, we're going to hear your interview with Richard Haas. John, tell me about why. I can imagine, knowing you as I do, why you were excited to talk to Richard Haas, but why don't you share that with our listeners? Uh, he's a, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, so has a uh, unique and broad understanding of the world. In this edition of the Haas interview, we will discuss uh, India and Taiwan. Happily enough, we're also going to post the full interview this evening, which will discuss India, Taiwan, Afghanistan, and many, many other subjects. So listen to that, please. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to hear that interview. Richard, welcome, and thank you for doing the podcast with us today. It's a real pleasure to have you. Good to be here, John. Thanks for having me. You wrote a terrific book a couple of years ago called World in Disarray, which I use in the News Items newsletter. John, you're right up there with China when it comes to intellectual property theft. I just want to point that out. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean. It's sort of public domain, isn't it? (laughs) Anyway, it's a terrific book, and it was made into a terrific documentary that you did with HBO and Vice. A subject that was not in there, if I remember correctly, was Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And here we are with The Economist putting Taiwan as like the most important or the most dangerous place in the world at the moment. You argued in an article, an essay that you wrote, I think, for Foreign Affairs, that the U.S. had to shift from strategic flexibility to strategic certainty regarding Taiwan. I wondered if you could walk our audience through that. Sure. So let me digress for a minute. The United States and mainland China, the People's Republic of China, however you want to refer to it, forged their modern relationship four or five decades ago. The glue was the shared animosity towards the Soviet Union. But the biggest stumbling block to the United States and China 
forging a workable relationship was Taiwan. Taiwan grew out of the Chinese Civil War when the communists won. They took control of the mainland. The so-called nationalists went to what was then called Formosa, created the Republic of China there. And the mainland has always said that there's only one China. There can't be two. And that Taiwan is a part of China from their point of view. The United States, after the end of the Chinese Civil War, we recognized what we now call Taiwan. Republic of China from 49 through basically for the next 30 years. But because of great power politics, when we decided to come together a bit with the People's Republic of China, we switched and we recognized the mainland, Peking and Beijing now as the capital. But this question of Taiwan status had to be finessed. And it really was an extraordinary piece of diplomatic statecraft or finesse by Nixon and Kissinger, by Mao and Zhou and Lai. What was agreed upon was using Middle Eastern language, the final status of Taiwan was going to be determined by the people of China and the people of Taiwan. Our only view was it had to be voluntary. It was coercive. We agreed that there was only one China. But the whole question of Taiwan's relationship with China was to be determined if the status quo changed in any direction, it had to be uh, voluntary. What we were worried, though, was about two possibilities that would upset the status quo and cause a crisis to war. One was that the mainland would use force to bring about non-voluntary unification. And the other was that Taiwan would declare independence, and that would be unacceptable to the mainland, and that would trigger war. So what we basically did was came up with this notion 40-odd years ago of strategic ambiguity. And basically, we told the mainland, you cannot rule out that we might use force to help Taiwan if you act against it. So they couldn't be sure that we wouldn't help Taiwan. And we told Taiwan, you do something like declare independence, which we would see as reckless, you cannot be sure that we will use force to help you. So if you add it all up, it was a kind of deterrence from changing the status quo through American uncertainty. And this has worked remarkably well for the best part of four or five decades. And the reason that people like me wanted to revisit it, one was the buildup of Chinese military capability, remarkable increases over the years. And the other is words coming out of Beijing from Xi Jinping. China's leader, that were quite ambitious and quite impatient when it came to Taiwan. Our view was we needed to introduce a degree of strategic clarity to basically tell the mainland, you should know that if you act forcibly against Taiwan, we're going to be there to help. We wouldn't specify exactly how. We're still not giving Taiwan a green light. We're not saying you can act recklessly. You shouldn't assume this is unconditional. This is all being done within the same framework that there's one China. We're not changing any of the basics, we put this out there. We thought this would help deterrence. And what we also have made clear is that what also has to change is not simply the rhetoric, but the capability. Right now, there's a gap between America's commitments in the Taiwan Relations Act and another piece of this diplomatic architecture, our commitments to Taiwan, and our capability to make good on them. So we said we think it's important to change the rhetorical question about the means of U.S. policy keep the diplomatic ends, and introduce greater military capability on the part of the United States, Taiwan, and of all the neighbors, Japan. Right. I don't think a crisis is imminent, but I think one is a lot more possible than it used to be. And where the economist is right, if a crisis were to come about, it would become the most dangerous place in the world, given how central the United States and China are to this era of history. Kurt Campbell, who was sort of, I guess you would call him the Asia czar for the Biden administration, said the other day that the U.S. wasn't ready to move off of strategic uncertainty. Right. Why did he say that? 
it was interesting that he said it because this is an administration where the Secretary of State has said the U.S. commitment to Taiwan is rock solid. Now, if that's not strategic clarity, I don't know what is. So I didn't understand that. Plus, this administration is poking the dragon in the eye. One of the things this administration is continuing that was begun by the previous administration is we are upgrading our day-to-day interaction with Taiwan, with officials in the government and so forth. So this administration has already sent over a high-level delegation there. We're inviting the Taiwan ambassador to the envoy, the head of their de facto diplomatic mission to the United States, was invited to the inauguration. We're doing all sorts of symbolic things, which, by the way, get the mainland Chinese really, really unhappy and nervous. So my view is we ought to cut out this symbolic stuff, which increases their unease about the potential for Taiwan independence. I actually think brings a, a crisis closer. I think we ought to cool it on some of the symbolic stuff and focus on the substantive stuff, what it is we say and what it is we do to increase deterrence. And one way we would do it is make it be more explicit about some of the costs that would accrue to the mainland if they were to use force or act coercively against uh, Taiwan. So I didn't quite understand uh, what Kurt Campbell was talking about, given what they're saying and what they're doing. It seemed to me he was making a distinction without a difference. Moving right along, India is basically experiencing a national catastrophe. There are suggestions that there could be as many as 3 million to 5 million new cases every day. It's obviously a big and hugely important country in terms of geopolitics. What do you make of what's going on there, and what do you think the impact India's catastrophe essentially will have on its role and on what its neighbors might think to do, given their troubles? John, you used the right word. It's a catastrophe and it's a tragedy. The scale of loss of life, I think, is large. I don't think the Indians so much are intentionally undercounting. I think they're undercounting simply because of the inability to count accurately, given that a lot of these people are not dying in hospitals. Hospitals are overwhelmed and they're dying in some increasingly in rural areas. So I think it's as bad as we think it is. My guess is based on all the reports I'm receiving, it's worse. And unlike, say, China or the United States, which are now on fairly steep, impressive growth trajectories, India is not. There's long been two Indias. You have this small, successful, middle-class, Bangalore, high-tech India. But then you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of Indians who are living on the edge in rural and urban poverty. And this will really hurt and affect that other large India, somewhere between 500 million and a billion people. But I also think political consequences are quite severe. Just the other day, Prime Minister Modi's party got hammered in some local elections. There's now been several votes cast in this context. The initial celebration about the success against COVID has really come back to the back, has really backfired. What happened was early on, the Indian COVID struggle didn't look so bad. So they allowed all sorts of political rallies to happen, religious events to happen, where millions of Indians would gather. Now they're paying the piper in a tragic way. It's going to really hurt Prime Minister Modi. Not clear to me whether he and his party can recover. There's not a strong, organized opposition. The old Congress party has fallen on somewhat hard times. I can imagine a prolonged period now, a fairly weak rule in India, where also several of the states are ruled by different parties. So it's much less organized country. The economic growth of India is significantly slowed. There's no silver lining here. And just as a 30-second more aside, I really think the U.S. ought to be doing more. We've announced that we're going to stop preventing intellectual property 
from potentially reaching places like India where over time they could make some vaccines. That's not enough, and it's certainly not soon enough. We should be exporting significant amounts of vaccines to India today, if not today, tomorrow, for humanitarian reasons, for strategic reasons, for economic reasons, and also for ourselves. The mutations and variants that are going to grow up in India and circulate around the world and come to the United States are going to be a threat, certainly to unvaccinated Americans, potentially to vaccinated Americans. So I really don't think we are acting with the scale and the urgency that we need to. I'm amazed that we haven't seen, obviously, this is on a much smaller scale, but a sort of Berlin airlift with just thousands of U.S. planes landing with vaccines and medicines and ventilators and on and on and on. The fact that we haven't done that, I think, is just astonishing. I agree with you. We sent some oxygen. We sent some PPE. But this is a country of 1.3, 1.4 billion people. And the needs are enormous. Right now, the United States, we've got an excess of vaccine supply. We don't have sufficient vaccine demand in this country. Right. India, shall we say, is at the other end of that spectrum. We can and should be doing more. And they're a critical ring fence to China as well, right? Absolutely. India is not a formal ally, but they are a strategic partner. At a minimum, it's a missed opportunity. Worse, this will become part of the Indian narrative that in India's time of dire need, why didn't the Americans do more for us? So I worry about the long-term consequences of what it is we're doing or what it is we're not doing. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to let you go. I'll see you on the golf course soon, I hope. And thank you again for doing the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Good to be here, John. Thanks for having me. So, John, that was a great interview with Richard Haas, whose book, World in Disarray, informed one of the editorial themes of this podcast, which is also based on your newsletter, News Items. And listeners should go to newsitems.substack.com. It is an excellent read. And after that, they should go to investableuniverse.com to find out about the global market of things. Rebecca's website is terrific. I recommend it to you highly. So that's all from us today here on News Items. We'll be back again tomorrow with more news. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Rossell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news. Music.